Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. What happens when your world changes in an instant? Well, our next guest has been through that and more. Cheryl Crowder is an existential humanistic psychotherapist with more than 40 years of experience in the field of depth psychology and human consciousness. She's been on our show before, sharing with our sharing her story with us regarding a book she published in 2017, Surviving the Storm, a workbook for telling your cancer story. And she has recently published Odyssey of Ashes, a memoir of love, loss, and letting go. Thank you for joining me today on the show, Cheryl. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate being back here, and I only wish I was in person with you. Oh, I do too. And, you know, I hope you do get a chance to come really soon, and we can talk some more about the book and about life in general. I think your story that you've been through so much yourself, you've been through a personal cancer journey, You've helped other people navigate that journey. And now you have shared with us an even deeper tragedy that occurred in your life. And this was the sudden loss of your loving husband of many years. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't know what it's like when something, something like this happens so unexpectedly, so suddenly, and having been through a life and death situation yourself with cancer, you know better than anybody that these sorts of situations can absolutely just turn overnight. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that moment. Your book is so poignant in the way that it describes in the very first chapter what was going on that evening and what happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I start the book out with the uh, the early morning hours in uh, May of 2016 when my husband, uh, you know, kind of woke up and said, oh, gosh, you know, my back, my back hurts. And, and you know, honestly, that wasn't that different. He had back issues. So uh, I said, well, rub my back for a little bit. And so I did. And, and uh, he said, well, I'm going to get up and went into the other room and uh, I followed him and he says, well, bring me, we have this foam roller, and he was going to roll on the roller. And, and, and then, um, you know, he said, well, you know, maybe get me some of this pain medication. He'd had a, a surgery earlier that year and uh, had not taken any pain medication for it. So, um, you know, I, 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 as I write in the book, you know, I, uh, as you always second-guess yourself when these sorts of things happen, um, I went and got the pain medication. I gave him some, and... Um, you know, then he says, "Well, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna be here, go back to bed." And um, so I, I go back to bed, and um, within moments, I start to feel really sick and, and nauseous and, and dizzy. And I think, "Oh my, did, did we have food poisoning?" I, it was very confusing. And then, you know, from the other room, I heard this uh, a noise that was you know, sort of indescribable. I do try to describe it in the book, but it's sort of like a roar and a flowing of water, and I, I just levitated and, you know, went back into the other room. And at that point, um, just everything kind of went into this, you know, intensive state where I was sitting next to him, and I suddenly realized that he wasn't breathing. 
And I immediately, I, you know, I don't even know, and I write about this in the first chapter. The book starts out with a bang, so to speak. You know, I, I roar into, into, you know, calling 911, and at this point I'm extremely heightened, and, uh, you know, the 911 operator is asking me these incredibly inane questions. Is he on hospice? I'm saying no. Is he on hospice? You know, I'm saying no. And finally I just am basically screaming on the line, get someone here. The woman is then offended with me. And um, and at this point, I go into sort of a timeless, because this is the way trauma is, and sudden death is a trauma very different from a, um, a long-standing or, you know, a death that takes a long time to happen. That has its own trauma, but sudden death goes into a whole shock of your body just being in shock. And I don't even know when did the paramedics arrive. I had this ancient dog at the time. They wouldn't come in, even though this dog could hardly walk. I had to put the dog in the bedroom and close the door. And at this point, you know, the paramedics are there. I'm there watching. And, um, you know, they, they say to me then, you should go to the other room. Uh, a woman goes into me at the other room, at which point I'm just shaking and, um this enormous guy who's the paramedic uh, one point comes back in and tells me, you know, I can't get a pulse. And at this point, I mean, I don't even know what realm I'm in. And um, the next thing I know, he, I hear his footsteps. He's a big guy. So they're pounding down the hallway. And I am just like, no, you know, this can't be happening. And, uh, you know, the next thing he says is, I'm sorry. And um, from that point, the whole early morning into the next day is, is like a, a dreamlike state, which, again, is, is very true of a trauma like this that can happen. Um, I was fortunate enough to have this lovely young policeman from the place where I live who, and I don't even know how, he, how did he get there. I don't know. When did he come in the room? I have no idea. Uh, and this young man stayed with me until my, my sister-in-law, my, my husband's uh, sister, came, and um, at which point then he finally left. I didn't even know when he left. And again, it's such a, you know, it's such a timeless experience when this kind of thing happens. And, and so from this moment on, um, I go on this journey of healing, recovery from the shock of this, and... Um, you know, just trying to put the pieces together. I had to call my son, who was in Los Angeles at the time, getting myself together to do that. You can imagine getting a, a text or a call at 5 in the morning. That's not a casual thing. It's not, hey, how, how's it going? And so having to tell him what happened. And, you know, it, it's such a blur that um, it's hard even to know who you are and where you are in that in that moment. It almost seems like time just is elastic at that point. It sort of stretches mm -hmm. and it's not something you can even measure in a way. And That's then right. you're dealing with this shock. And as you're calling other loved ones, that shock effect is rippled because mm -hmm. they're feeling mm -hmm. the same shock. They're getting a mm -hmm. call at five in the morning. Your loved one is, is gone. Your father is mm -hmm. passed away. Mm -hmm. And they're like, are you kidding? I spoke to him yesterday. Mm -hmm. And you almost mm -hmm. have to relive that same 
trauma while you're going through it, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. to me just magnifies the difficulty that you're experiencing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and again, it's, it's almost like an automatic pilot. And I'm sure that if anybody is listening that has experienced a sudden death, um, they know exactly what I'm talking about. I, um, one of the interviews that I've done so far, uh, the person who wanted to interview me for his podcast had experienced the sudden death of his father when he was only 20 years old and his father was only 48 years old. And he said to me, you know, when I read this, this is the first time that I read anything where I felt someone else understood what this experience was like. Because again, sudden death is not talked about. It's um, it's, again, such a shock and such a trauma that I feel people want to turn away and move on. You know, you often hear, oh, well, when someone dies suddenly, what a relief. They haven't suffered. And I say to those people, well, how do you know? How do you know what it's like to be ripped out of your body and die suddenly? And certainly those are left behind are traumatized in a different way than people who have had the experience of being traumatized with a long illness, which is another trauma. I'm not saying it isn't, but they're very, very different ways of dying. Oh, you're absolutely right. And I think anyone who's been through this experience knows that hearing somebody try and say what they think might be helpful, oh, at least they didn't suffer is probably not that helpful after all. Right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Cheryl Crowter, author of Odyssey of Ashes. And we're going to talk about what happens next in the immediate aftermath of losing someone you love. How do you handle some of the day-to-day things that transpire that you never expected you would be dealing with alone? We'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I have author and psychotherapist Cheryl Crowder on the line. She's talking about her latest book, Odyssey of Ashes. And one of the things that you just mentioned, Cheryl, is that, you know, as well-intentioned as some people may be, thinking that just because their loved one, in their perception, may not have suffered doesn't really make it any easier, particularly Mm -hmm. not for the people that are left behind. And mm-hmm. in, in this situation, I mean, this was this was like a 4 a.m. event that you never anticipated. Now, there were some unique things about the relationship you had with your husband. And I want to share one of the things you mentioned in your book, the last words that you always said to one another, because that's so important when I think of people not realizing their last words and how Very often I will hear family members say, but the last thing I said to my grandfather or my husband or my loved one was something that wasn't what I wanted to be the last words. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But you kind of had a foolproof way against that. Tell me more. Yeah. Well, I have 
from the first book, as because you and I have talked about in the first book that I wrote, which was about uh, people who have had cancer. It's about cancer survivorship. It's about, you know, the, the patients, their partners, family members, and caregivers. And I had a life-threatening diagnosis when I was 55 years old. I didn't know if I was going to live. And at that point, I faced you know, straight on my own mortality. At that point, I realized how precious life could be and how suddenly it could be taken. You know, a life-threatening diagnosis, although not the same as a sudden death, still sort of pulls you up into this reckoning of, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm not immortal. Anything can happen. I come from a family of longevity. My assumption had been, well, you know, they all lived into their 80s. Some lived into their hundreds. Of course, that would be me. And then, of course, I got this diagnosis at 55, and it was, well, that's not necessarily true. So life became very precious. And, and frankly, at that point, I feel now, thank goodness, knock on wood, 14 years later, that I'm on bonus time. So John and I decided that we would always tell each other whenever we parted, I love you, saying goodnight, I love you, Uh, someone going off to the store, I love you. We decided that would always be the last words that we spoke to each other before we parted. And indeed, the night when he died, the last words that were spoken when I left the room where he was struggling with this pain, we both said, I love you. So You can't have any regrets a, with that. Yeah, it's a good reminder for all of us that no matter what is going on, all the struggles, all the silly fights that we have with one another, which of course are part of intimacy, so it's not to say that isn't just what happens. Yet, if you remember that the parting words you want to have are, I love you, that helps the sting of the disappearance of someone that means the world to you. And suddenly just uh, ripped away. I cannot even imagine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, the other thing that you sort of delve into in your book, which I think is so artfully written, is that you talk a little bit Thank about... You this this contest that he always wanted to win Mm -hmm. and it had to do with a sporting activity that you know you made you made fishing sound like something I'd want to do even though at first glance I'm like I I don't I don't think I want to do that I (laughs) I get boat sick I don't think so I don't want to I don't want to injure fish I mean I have all these thoughts Mm -hmm. about it but Mm -hmm. the way that you wrote about it almost inspired me to be like I could try this too what Mm -hmm. was the history behind his love of fishing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, John uh, always loved fishing. And when he was, uh, was like 10 years old, he invented, he was a very inventive, inventive, creative man. He was very pragmatic. And he invented a little rod, which he then took in a place called Cisco Grove, which is in Northern California. And he put a little fly on it. And it was the first time he caught a fish on a fly. So we'd always joke when we go to Lake Tahoe, again in Northern California, that there should be a placard uh, going by Cisco Grove, site of where John Leonard caught his first fish on a fly and was hooked forever. 
Well, because he loved it so much, he wanted me to join him. And I thought, well, what the heck? You know, I love this man. This is his passion. So we would. Uh, oh, we you're would better go than me. I would have been like, I don't <laughs> think so. You go fly fish. You know, I'll be home. I know. Well, I mean, it was na- it was beautiful natural settings. I loved it. But as the book says, you know, the first time we ever went fly fishing together was nearly our last. And we quickly discovered that he was not the best teacher for me um, because he was not the most patient man at times. And um, we had at that first uh, fishing expedition uh, a rather uncomfortable, shall we say, to put it mildly, situation. But after that, uh, he would hire guides who could, in a, as I say in the book, who would babysit me as I, uh, as I would do fly fishing. And some of these guides uh, were just incredible men who, frankly, were more concerned about catching a fish than I was. Uh, I, was I loved being in a river. I loved looking at the banks of the river, the mountains, all the surroundings. It was very peaceful. It was, it was some of my favorite times with him would be on rivers, sitting beside the river on a log, having a sandwich, looking over the water. I learned how to read water. Uh, I think I became more of a fish than a fisher person because I do understand how to read water, which is quite a deep, beautiful thing. And to me, it's metaphoric for the way that we read our souls and the depth of our souls, which are very watery in my own experience, both personally and professionally. So, when I had cancer, uh, I was fortunate enough to apply to and be ex- and my ticket was dra- drawn, so to speak, for a group called Casting for Recovery, which takes women who have had breast cancer out to fly fish. Uh, it's a weekend. It's beautiful. And it was discovered that the motion of casting a fly rod was very helpful in the healing or the prevention of lymphedema, which is a condition that can happen for women with breast cancer. Sure, it kind of makes sense. So, you're rotating yeah, your arm right? and moving yeah, it around. You're, yeah. you're, moving, you're moving it and moving that, those lymph nodes. And so I was lucky enough to go on this weekend, and at the end of it they have what they call river helpers who come and help the women fish for the last couple hours of the retreat. So I told John about this. I said, you know, they need river helpers. And because he was really a master fly fisherman, he signed up. And for nine years, he went at the end of these retreats and fished with women. For him, it was not only the use of his skill, but a way that he could process my own breast cancer and deal with it himself. Every year, this organization has a a gala, as most nonprofits do, as we know, in order to make enough money. Every year, he would buy a $50 ticket, which uh, was a raffle to a guided fly fishing trip for two on one of the, you know, sort of the great rivers of the world, which are in Montana. So each, each year, he'd buy this ticket. He'd hope he'd win. No, no, no. So... Five months after he died, I'm in Lake Tahoe with some friends of mine on a trip that all four of us had planned. We're hiking, and my cell phone rings, which is totally annoying. I mean, that I had a cell phone, number one, is annoying. That you were just being I didn't safe. Turn it off. Okay. Annoying. But we get back to the car. I play the message, and the woman 
who was at that time the head of the Northern California group of Casting for Recovery, has tells me that on that gala, she has taken his ticket, she has put it in the hopper, and the night of the gala, she's the one drawing it. She drew out John's ticket. Oh, I have the chicken tells, skin. Yeah, and the, I know. And the message she tells me, I was so, I, I just couldn't even read it. I was crying. She gave it to somebody else to read, and he had won five months after his death. So out of the kindness both of, of this woman and this organization, they offered this trip to me, which I thought was a synchronistic event that led to this story. So I went to Montana to get to scatter his ashes, which was his request. We both had requests of where we wanted our ashes scattered. He wanted his scattered by a trout stream or river. So I made this journey to Montana to scatter his ashes by the Madison River. Ooh, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. We're talking with Cheryl Crowder, author of Odyssey of Ashes. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about what happened and how did fly fishing help Cheryl to deal with the sudden, unexpected, tragic loss of her husband, John, and how, you know, sometimes life comes full circle. And that's what we're going to hear about in just a few moments. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I have psychotherapist Cheryl Crowder on the line. She is the author of Odyssey of Ashes, a memoir of love, loss, and letting go. In the first portion of the show, we heard about what happened when, unfortunately, her son, her husband suddenly passed away unexpectedly. In the second part of the show, we heard a little bit about how fly fishing became the next activity that they had done together that she was now taking on solo on her own and this was the journey of also releasing his ashes so Cheryl bring us to the story you won this this event for two so you go off to you said Montana is the place where the best rivers are and this becomes your your mission as you were going to release his ashes to where he wanted to be Mm-hmm. Now, in the process of this, you've also learned a lot of different techniques and things that, unfortunately, having been through this, you can share with those who have yet to walk that path. Not that they ever want to, but not that we really get a choice in it. So as you fulfilled his request on where to release his ashes... It also brought you to a couple of other realizations as well. Share more about that. Mm -hmm. Well, I would say that this journey brought me to so many deep realizations about um, what it's like to deeply let go of someone that you love, what it's like to move from the life that you 
expected, you would have into one that was not planned, was not chosen, and yet the ways that any one of us can travel through these uncharted territories and learn how to do so. I do describe in the book a lot about you know, the fly fishing adventures and misadventures that John and I would have on rivers. Uh, I was never uh, as good as he was at fly fishing, but by the time I got to Montana, um, again, traveling alone, and John and I, I think it's another part of the story, that John and I had been to Montana to fish, oh my gosh, um, right at the beginning of our relationship. It wasn't the same section of Montana. It was a different area, a different river. So it was not the same experience, yet the, the same airport that he and I had landed in, I went in by myself. And I, as I say in the book, the first time I went to Montana, John and I were carrying fly rods and boots. The second time it was me. I did not bring rods, and I... I brought John in a small plastic bag of ashes to a spot that he had always wanted to return. And I began my drive then into um, the valley of where Ennis, Montana, a very small town, literally one road, nothing around there, no cars on the road. At one point I thought, what the heck am I doing? I don't know where I'm going I don't know even who I am at some level at this point, but I just kept driving and arrived at this this lodge, which generously had been donated by a, a lovely man um, and his wife. They donated this as a prize to Casting for Recovery. So he greeted me. I went to my room. The next morning was my time to go out on the river, and I was given a guide uh, named Mike his nickname was Dirty Mike Elliot, who took one look at me and thought, oh, my gosh. I could see in his eyes, he said, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do with this woman? She looks like, you know, this middle-aged, well, middle-aged is kind, this older woman who doesn't know a thing about fishing. So I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, how, how are we going to deal with this? But long story short, uh, the book describes my my trip, my, my float with Mike down the Madison River, and as we floated, he noticed that I actually, because of the lessons I had taken, the guides I had worked with, um, many of these, these men I mention in the book, some of whom were extremely important to me, wonderful men who did teach me how to cast and how to fish. So he, he begins to notice that I actually have some skill at fishing. We, we spend the day then down the river, and I keep thinking, well, you know, I'm going to scatter the ashes. I'm going to scatter the ashes. At one point, Mike gets out of the boat, and we have, we're in this little metal boat, and it's, it's actually pretty stormy, as, as can happen in these, in these areas. Montana can be very stormy in the summer. And um, at one point, he gets out of the boat, and he comes back and says, well, you know, I wouldn't get out of the boat here. There's a lot of rattlesnakes, at which point I decided, well, I don't think this is a good time to do it. And and then I realized that I was going to, this was a, a very solitary ritual, and I was going to need to do this alone. So uh, he and I finished what for me was the best fishing day of my life. 
I have pictures of myself with enormous trout, uh, more bigger trout and more success on any fishing trip I had ever been on. And later that day, there was a farm-to-table dinner at uh, this lodge, and I'm sitting next to this man who asked me what I was doing there, and I told him the story. I was, at the, I was fishing, and he said, oh, my gosh, you were the woman on the river. And I said, yeah, that was me. And he said, and this was a great compliment. I, I still am very proud of it. He says, well, we were all watching you, and we all realized that you knew how to cast. You knew how to fish. And I said, well, thank you very much. It's taken a long time to learn that. Oh, Cheryl, I know that you probably fished better than you ever had in life. We are going to have to talk with you again. If people want to read Odyssey of Ashes, you can certainly go to their local bookstores. We should do it again. I want to hear more. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week right here on The Body Show.